0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We left off with the Apostle Matthew quoting from the prophet Isaiah concerning the power and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus came from heaven to earth. And as we saw, Jesus was the servant of God. Um, He was empowered by the Holy Spirit His ministry was to heal and strengthen and mend broken hearts. Um, We saw the contrast between Jesus and the religious leaders because the religious leaders were all about putting people under bondage and burdens. We saw Jesus healing somebody on the Sabbath, and they were mad at him. So Jesus is plotting how to heal and minister while the Pharisees were plotting, it said, how to put Jesus to death. They wanted to destroy him. Because he was healing people on the Sabbath. How sad. So let's pick up, uh, we'll move back to verse 18 of chapter 12. We looked at 18 through 21 last time, but uh, as a quick review, uh, let's read what Isaiah said about God's anointed servant. It says, Behold, again, quoting from Isaiah, My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well-pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. So again, it was a very simple, quiet, powerful ministry that Jesus was involved in. And again, God revealed very clearly that he put his spirit upon Jesus. We saw that back in chapter 3 when John the Baptist was baptizing, Jesus came to him, and when he was baptized, as soon as Jesus came out of the waters, his Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove, and the Father said from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And that's exactly what we see here. The Spirit came upon him, and the Father was well pleased in the Lord Jesus. That is when Jesus began his earthly ministry. Uh, I bring this up because in the rest of this chapter, it deals with these religious leaders questioning the power of Jesus and the power that he is ministering in. They will say, oh, he's doing these things by the power of Satan. Unfortunately, if the Pharisees would have known what their Old Testament scripture said, about Jesus and the Holy Spirit power upon Jesus, they would not have accused him of what they were saying. They would have understood that Jesus was filled with the Spirit, and everything he did, everything he said, it all lined up with the Word of God, and Jesus was revealing the heart and the mind of the Father to the people, and yet the religious leaders were rejecting him. Again, the hardness of their hearts prevented them from understanding that simplicity and the, the truth of God's Word and how the truth of God's word reveals Jesus Christ to us. This is why Jesus would say to these same religious leaders in John chapter 8, look at these verses, starting in verse 38, or John 5, I should say, verse 38. It says, But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. So the father sent Jesus, but they weren't believing in Jesus. You, he's speaking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And so instead of these religious leaders looking to the Word of God to find the truth about their Messiah Jesus, their own pride and their fleshly ambition kept them from seeing that it was the Holy Spirit working in Christ, and that everything Jesus said and did was to the glory of the Father. So look at verse 20 once again. It says, A bruised reed, this is the ministry of Jesus, A bruised reed he will not break. Uh, again, you think of a, a reed alongside of a river or a lake, like a cattail, and a bruised reed simply means it bent over, it got busted somehow, the wind knocked it over, or maybe somebody stepped on it. It says a bruise reed, he won't break. He won't snap it off and discard it. He will mend it. He will you know, straighten it back up, wrap it up so it stands strong once again. A smoking flax, he says, he will not quench. A smoking flax is when the oil lamp is about to go out. The oil is out. There's just a little puff of smoke coming out of the wick. That's the flax. And instead of just going pfft, Putting it out, he would refill it with oil. He would breathe on it, bring it back to flame. And that's what he does with us. Remember, this is why he came the first time. He came to heal broken hearts, to set captives free. He came to open blind eyes, set at liberty those who were oppressed. He came to give life, and that more abundantly. Uh, We're told he came to seek and to save those that are lost. He came to give life. His life is a ransom for many. In John 3.17, Jesus says, for, the, um, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And, and that's still the ongoing ministry of Jesus today. And so if any of you feel beat up, burned out, just know that Jesus is here right now, and only He can repair the damage that you're dealing with, whatever that might be. He can do it. You know, Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants you to experience corruption and damnation, and he wants you to experience um, hardship. You know, he does not want you to experience God's grace upon your life or the love of Jesus, he doesn't want you to experience the, the power of the Holy Spirit upon your life. Satan just wants you to live in fear and doubt and condemnation. But for all of us who have felt like bruised reeds or smoking flax, you know, it's awesome to know and experience God's grace and His love, His compassion upon us. At his second coming, Jesus will come in power and authority and in judgment, where he will judge those who have rejected Christ. But for us, Romans 8.1 is valid. For all of us who are in Christ, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation, there's no judgment, to those who are, notice, in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So watch how the truth of who Jesus is comes against the lies of the enemy during this time in his ministry. We pick up in chapter 12, verse 22. Then one was brought to him, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed... And said, could this be the son of David? And so all these multitudes of people who are following Jesus, they're, they're amazed at this point, And they're just totally blown away by all the things that he's doing. And so they're thinking to themselves, could this be the son of David? In other words, and some of the other Gospels, uh, will quote them as saying, when the Messiah comes, will he do more miracles than this? I mean, they're like, this has got to be our Messiah. I mean, he's doing everything the scriptures tell us the Messiah would do. Notice again, in verse 22, it says, Then one was brought to him. This guy's messed up. Totally messed up. He's blind. He's mute. He's demon-possessed. And I'm sure his friends took him to various doctors. They probably took him to the religious leaders, but nobody could help him. But then... They brought him to Jesus. And this is so important. How many people do you know that are totally messed up? They've been beaten down. They're confused you know, just by life in general, but by the way the world is right now, there's a lot of craziness going on around us. They need to be brought to Jesus. They don't need church. They don't need meetings. They need Jesus. That's the bottom line. And I think of my own life before I got saved. I was really messed up. I was totally lost. I was being oppressed by the enemy big time. I was blind to the ways of God. But when my teammates brought me to Jesus, I was radically delivered. I was radically saved. And so we need to bring people to Jesus because they are beaten up. They are broken and how we need to bring them to Christ. Because, again, the gospel of Jesus is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, the good news, that Jesus died for your sins. He was buried in the tomb. He rose from the grave on the third day, and he alone can give everlasting life. So they brought this beaten down, broken down, demon-possessed man to Jesus, and it says he healed them. Verse 24 Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Again, it shows us how blind, how deceived these religious leaders, these Pharisees were at this time. They are so jealous of what Jesus is doing, they try to convince the multitudes, oh, he's only doing this by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. In other words, by Satan. This will be their downfall. Instead of looking to the scriptures and testing what Jesus is doing by the word of God, they, they let their emotions take over. Again, they're filled with rage, jealousy, envy because of what he's doing. This is why God says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, we'll see in a moment. Jesus knows it. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows everything about you. And even though we have been given a new heart when we were born again, even though we've been given the mind of Christ, we are far from perfect. We still have a spiritual battle going on. Paul talks about this wrestling in our lives between our old man and the new man. The old man were to reckon him dead. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. In other words, die to your flesh daily because your old man's going to try to convince you of things that aren't right. Your new man, you need to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Colossians 3 verse 2, Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. This is extremely important for us as Christians to remember because it is an ongoing battle. None of us have arrived, like Paul says, to the Philippians. None of us are perfect, yet we will be glorified when we get into His presence. So the the point is be careful with your emotions. Be careful when it comes to following your heart. Be careful when it comes to following your dreams Why do I say that? Because, well, first of all, God can work through those areas of our lives. He can give us dreams and visions and so forth. But be careful. The the Word of God, the Bible you're holding in your hand, this is the final authority, not your dreams and visions. They can be of the Lord, but they're not always of the Lord. So be careful. I've seen way too many Christians get hurt They get ensnared, they get entangled in wrong situations because they followed their heart, even though the Word of God was clear, this is what God says. I've had people over the years say, Oh, I really felt like my heart was telling me I should marry this non-believer. I just felt it. It was in my heart. Even though the Word of God said just the opposite. 2 Corinthians 6.14, it supersedes your feelings. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? God's not going to say something the opposite of what His Word already declares. Too many Christians, they say, oh, I just want to feel stuff. I just want to experience stuff. That's okay. But a better line up with God's Word. This is the final authority. This is also why so many churches are falling by the wayside today. They start compromising the Word of God. They start trying to be culturally relevant. And pretty soon, the Word of God is no longer the authority. Now it's all we feel like we need to have everybody and anybody become a pastor. It doesn't matter what they are, who they are, what they practice. We just want to be open. Be careful. It goes against the revealed Word of God. Pretty soon, people start doing what is right in their own eyes like they do in the book of Judges, but they're not doing what's right in God's eyes. Well, look at verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? First of all, notice he knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. That pe- that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. Um I don't always want him to know my thoughts when I'm driving down a you know highway and idiots are driving around and speeding and cutting me off and you know then he's like okay lord I'm sorry. You love those people. I don't like them right now, but you love them. Okay. But here Jesus is being very logical. The truth is played out every day throughout the world, whether it be countries divided, like our country is today, families divided, churches divided, a lot of things are divided. Satan wants to divide in order to bring chaos and fear and bitterness. On the other hand, when Jesus is moving among people, he brings in true peace, true unity, agape love. But here's an important thing to remember. People will only find true peace and unity and agape love if they're united in the truth of God's word and the truth of who Jesus Christ is. You know, we already talked about this back in Matthew chapter 10. Look at this verse. It's on the screen. Verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth, even though we'll sing about that in a couple weeks. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And again, we saw as we went through that section, the division comes because Jesus divides the lives of the enemy with the truth of who he is based on the truth of what God's word declares about Jesus. In this section of scripture, Jesus makes it crystal clear that his ministry is being accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit Because he is setting captives free. Unlike Satan, who's bringing division because he's bringing people into bondage. Two diametrically opposed ministries. Jesus is pointing this out in the clearest possible terms. Satan would never want to divide his kingdom because he wants more people destroyed. He wants more people in bondage. But again, Jesus came to set captives free, to give us life and that more abundantly. Verse 27. So he asked these guys, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. So again, he turns their illogical argument back onto them. You know, if you Pharisees think, I'm casting out demons by Satan, then who are your sons casting out demons, I might add, unsuccessfully? Jesus has been going throughout Israel. Everywhere he goes, he's casting out demons out of multitudes of people. So the Jews were very unsuccessful doing it. That's why there are so many demon-possessed people when Jesus was there. By the way, the Jews were not able to cast out demons many times. We'll see an example here in a moment. But Jesus knew the Pharisees could not answer this question. In fact, they were so unsuccessful that some unbelieving Jews tried to cast out demons using Jesus' name, like, you know, just a magic wand, oh yeah, in the name of Jesus. That's what people try to do today. The only way we have authority over the enemy is because Jesus is in us. Jesus has the authority over demons. Not you, not me, but him working in us and through us. But check this out. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 13. This is when Paul was ministering in Ephesus. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. They thought they had their bases covered. We're using Jesus' name and Paul's ministering and we see him doing these things, so we're going to use his name too. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? It's like, who in the world are you guys? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Again, the Jewish exorcists were not very successful when it came to spiritual warfare. That's only because they didn't have Jesus in them. The reason you and I can be successful in spiritual warfare is because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. I just quoted a verse before I had you guys look at it. 1 John 4.4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you, that's Jesus, is greater than he who is in the world. It's only because the risen living Lord and Savior himself dwells inside of us that we have any authority over demons. God used me a couple times in the years past to cast demon out of somebody that was demon-possessed. It wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit. He's infinitely more powerful than any demon, than Satan. And so it's the Lord working in us and through us. But it's not like a magic wand. You wave it and say the right words and it happens. No, it's the authority of Jesus working in you. That's why Paul would say later uh, to the member the, in, in uh, Philippi, the demon-possessed girl, he says, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. Paul could do that because of the, the authority he had from Jesus to cast out demons wasn't Paul's ability, but it's Jesus working in us and through us. So, verse 28, Jesus says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So you're saying I'm doing this in the power of Beelzebub. I'm saying if I'm doing this, casting out demons, then the power of God is among you. This would have been a slap in the side of the head of these Pharisees. He's given them an either-or scenario. He's saying, I'm either a crazy person throwing out these things, telling demons to leave, or I am the Lord, the King, over God's kingdom. So the ball is in the court, so to speak, of the Pharisees. They would have to decide whether or not to believe in Jesus or reject Him. That same choice is given to people today. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then you have victory over the enemy. But if he's not, then what are you thinking? Is Jesus just another crazy person, or is he the Messiah? Is he, like Josh McDowell used to say, he's only, he can only be three things. Jesus is either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And that's the same three things you have to come to a conclusion on today in your life. Is he a liar? He said he was a messiah, but he's lying to us. Or is he a lunatic? Oh, he just thought he was a messiah. He was just crazy. Or is he actually the Lord and Savior of mankind? To prove to the people that Jesus is the king over God's kingdom, he says in verse 29, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house?" So he's making it clear that you can't enter a strong man's house, take everything out of the house unless you first bind up, tie up that strong man. And you have to be stronger than that strong man. And it's obvious Jesus is saying, yeah, Satan is a strong man. I'm in his house, this world, and I am tying him up. I'm releasing captives because there's so many people under bondage to Satan. So Jesus alone is the one who has the power and the authority to bind satan and set captives free Uh, again the only way this would make sense was that you know if if jesus was working with satan the only way it makes sense is if he was bringing more people into bondage that's obviously not the case he's setting people free And just the fact that Jesus is setting captives free meant two things were happening here, at least two things. Number one, it shows us that his ministry is 180 degree opposite of Satan's ministry. Jesus came to give us life, Satan wants to destroy. Secondly, it shows us the superior strength and power that Jesus has over Satan. By the way, don't ever think that Satan and Jesus are equal foes. Not even close. Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth, including creating Lucifer. Lucifer was a mighty archangel. Lucifer was created to worship the Father around the throne of God. But when pride entered into Lucifer's heart, he got booted out. This is recorded in two places. Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12, says this, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, which means shining one, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken nations. For you have said in your heart, and there's five I wills that Satan says. And God says, I know you won't, but he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And that is known as the lie of Satan. That's what he brought in the garden when he told Eve, you're not going to die. You'll be just like God. That's the lie of Satan. Satan says, I'll be just like the Most High And this is God's response. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Look at these verses in Ezekiel 28. It's a dual prophecy because he's speaking about an earthly king, but it also is obvious he's speaking of Satan here. You are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect... In your ways, no man is perfect. So this is Satan before he was, or Lucifer, before he was kicked out. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity, and it was rebellion, pride, iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. This is why we don't have to be afraid or fearful of Satan and all his demons. We are safe and secure in the hands of Jesus Christ. Jesus will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He has given us the whole armor of God by which we can stand against the schemes of the devil, the tricks, the temptations of the devil. We don't have to give in, even though we do give in. And when we do, we can still humble ourselves, confess our sin, repent, and we're cleansed. We're forgiven because we're in Christ. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, not in your own strength, but in the Lord, and in the power of His might, not your own, but His. Put on the whole armor of God, and he goes on to talk about that. You can read it later. You know, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. The, take the shield of faith, which will, which will extinguish all fiery darts of the enemy. But put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil. Growing up as a kid, and I never knew that. I wasn't saved till I was almost 21. But my favorite cartoon as a kid was... While E Coyote and the Roadrunner. That's where Wile E, that's where he gets his name. The wiles of the devil. It just means the scheming of the devil. That's why the coyote was always trying to scheme against the roadrunner. Then he had to get out of there because the enemy was always trying to drop, you know, an Acme iron on his head or something. That's what Satan does. He is uh, he's scheming. Wiles of the devil means he's scheming against you, looking for ways to attack. The only reason we can stand against Satan and win is because of Jesus in us. Because we are in Christ, we too can have victory over all of his attacks, his schemes, his wiles, and so forth. Well, look at verse 30. Jesus goes on to say, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad, so Jesus tells these hard-hearted Pharisees, "You're either for me or you're against me. There's no neutral ground now there's a lot of people say, "Well, I'm not against Jesus, I'm just not for him, so I'm really not against no, you are against him, according to what Jesus says here. This will be made crystal clear when all unbelievers stand before the great white throne." And they will be forced to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. There's a day coming when everyone will bow down before the Lord. Everyone will admit he is the Lord to the glory of the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can either do it now, willingly, and receive him as your Lord and Savior, or you will be made to bow down before him at the great white throne. Unfortunately, at the great white throne, it's too late. It's sentencing day for the lake of fire. With God, there's no gray area. It's, it's light, it's dark, it's right, it's wrong. You're either for Him or against Him. Isaiah 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Hmm. I think abortion would fit into that category who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 31, Therefore, Jesus is still speaking to these Pharisees, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, it will be forgiven him. Never use his name in vain. Man, when I was a pitcher in high school and college, I swore like a sailor. I used Jesus' name, God's name. It was not pretty. Guess what? He will forgive. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, Jesus, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. You want the good news first or the bad news? Well, let me give you the good news first, and that is Jesus is ready, willing, and he alone is able to forgive anybody of any sin that they've ever committed. Even somebody like Saul of Tarsus. Remember, he talks about that when he's writing to Timothy. God used me as an example, as a pattern to follow, that if he can forgive me, he can forgive anybody, because Paul had Christians put to death. When was the last time you murdered a Christian? But he's willing to forgive the Apostle Paul. That well, was Apostle Paul, but a Saul of Tarsus. How about Jeffrey Dahmer? Oh, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. That was a joke. You didn't get it. Okay. <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer ate people. But at the end of his life, he repented and gave his life to Christ, and he got saved. That's the power of the gospel, to save anybody, no matter what they've done. That's what Jesus says here. Anybody. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, men. That's the good news. But the bad news is nobody will be forgiven if they commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In the context of what we're reading here, Jesus is warning these Pharisees, they're close to doing just that because they're attributing his miracles to Satan and the power of Satan and not the Holy Spirit's power. This will ultimately be played out in a person's life if they never yield their life to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and thus they never come to Jesus for salvation. That's the ultimate blasphemy. That's when blasphemy of the Holy Spirit happens, is when you die rejecting Jesus. Then you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Up until that moment you die, you haven't. That's good news. Remember the thief on the cross. He's hanging next to Jesus. The other thief's hanging next to Jesus. We're told that both of them are mocking him. Both of them are saying, oh, you're just getting what you deserve. Then eventually that one thief, it says he humbled himself and he looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. It wasn't too late. It's only too late if you die without Jesus because Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, he talks about it's appointed unto men once to die, then comes judgment. After you die, it's too late. Even though our neighbors to the west of us say, oh no, you can have many chances after you die, somebody can be baptized for you, a proxy baptism, and you'll go to heaven. No, the Bible's very clear. Now, this side of death, you have to make a choice for Jesus. If you wait and you die without Jesus, it's too late. That's the ultimate blasphemy, rejecting the Holy Spirit as he convicts people of sin, as he he points people to Jesus. The whole ministry of the Holy Spirit is told, not the whole ministry, but the ministry of conviction of sin is found in John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. This is Jesus speaking. He says, of the Spirit, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. In other words, we're all sinners, and we need a Savior. And of righteousness. He convicts you that you're not righteous without Jesus. You can't make yourself righteous. You can't work your way to heaven. And of judgment. Hey, you're going to be judged unless you come to Christ for salvation of sin because they do not believe in me. Again, the bottom line is, if you reject Jesus and die without receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have committed the unpardonable sin. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. As Jesus says at the end of verse 32, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. You and I as believers, we cannot commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible because he's already in us. Jesus is dwelling His The Holy Spirit is in us. He's upon our lives. We're new creations in Christ. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. If somebody says, well, I stopped believing in Jesus, and now I don't believe in Him anymore, and you die in that state, where, where would I go? i say, I don't know. I have no idea where you're going to go. I don't know if you were really saved to begin with. Or if you never got saved to begin with. I don't know. Bottom line is whether you feel like I left Jesus or I never was saved, the bottom line is you need to repent and get right with Jesus. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. In other words, the fruit of Jesus' ministry was obviously very good fruit. He's casting out demons. He's cleansing lepers. He's opening up blind eyes and ears. He's setting captives free. He's raising people from the dead. I'd say that's pretty good fruit. (laughs) That's the best fruit of all. So could a bad tree bring forth such good fruit? That's what he's asking. No way. When you compared the fruit of what Jesus was doing to the fruit of the Pharisees, there was no comparison. Again, Jesus brought freedom. He brought blessing. He brought life. The Pharisees produced bondage, burdens, and suffering among the people. That's why Jesus said, take my yoke and learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Verse 34. Brutal of vipers. I love that. I love that Jesus would get angry and he would he would say things that, Oh, Jesus wouldn't say that. He would be, he wouldn't be saying anything harsh. Brood of vipers! <laughs> I love it. He'll call him a bunch of whitewashed sepulchers later. He'll say, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! That's what chapter 23 is all about. He just goes, woe to you, and he gets on their case. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. Jesus is making it very clear. Whatever is in a person's heart will eventually come out of your mouth. If your heart is full of bitterness, anger, animosity, guess what? You'll start speaking that way. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is why it's so important to ask the Lord, Search my heart. Cleanse my heart. Refill my heart with your love, your joy, your peace. I want more of the fruit of the Spirit produce my life, not the things of this world. Then we need to refill our hearts and ask the Holy Spirit to refill us up, overflowing. And we do that by getting into God's Word, letting the Word of God get into us, and He renews our hearts, He renews our minds. It's so true, you can tell a lot about a person by what comes out of their mouth. So when Jesus calls these Pharisees brood of vipers, it's because they're speaking blasphemous terms, they're speaking blasphemous words, lying words against the Holy Spirit and against the ministry of Jesus. In other words, they're following in the footsteps of the serpent in the garden, Satan, who you could call the first viper. And if he's the first viper, he's calling these guys a brood of vipers. They're the offspring of Satan. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says. Look at this verse in John chapter 8, verse 44, speaking to these same people. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. That's what's in his heart. For he is a liar and the father of it. Again, without Jesus Christ in our lives, who knows the depths of wickedness and sin and corruption and deceit that can come out of a person's mouth? This is why King David cried out to the Lord. Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So before you think, well, that's just Old Testament. We don't need to do that in the New Testament. Well, Paul says in Ephesians 4.21 to the saints in Ephesus, If indeed you have heard him, and have been taught by him, hopefully you are as you spend time in his word, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So keep putting off, and he talks about that in Colossians as well, putting off the old, putting on the new, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. It's an ongoing process. Again, we are in process. That's the sanctification process. The three ways the Bible talks about our salvation is past tense. You are justified. When you come to Christ, he looks at you and he sees you just as if, justified, just as if you'd never sinned. God sees Jesus in you. That's why you're justified. We're not yet glorified, That happens when we die and we're in his presence and then we'll be glorified and we'll receive a resurrection body at the rapture. Then we'll be perfect. Then we won't even be able to sin. We're incapable of sinning. But right now we're in that process of sanctification where we're going from glory. Yes, we're new creations in Christ to glory. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of jesus christ so we're in that process yes we're fully saved but we're still in process because we're in these carcasses of flesh that still do things and say things that aren't always pleasing to the lord ch spurgeon i love i love what he said about this as far as what's in your heart will come out of your mouth whatever is in the well is what the bucket brings up (laughs) pretty simple Whatever's in the well, it'll eventually come to the surface. Verse 36, Jesus says, But I say to you that for every idle word men speak, may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What are these words that Jesus says will either justify or condemn us? Again, in context, It's the words that come out of our hearts and our mouths concerning Jesus Christ. Paul says it like this in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth, the word confess means to agree with, so you're agreeing with God, you're confessing with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, or some versions say, you're confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so, out of their mouths, these Pharisees are denying who Jesus is, and they are attributing his miracles to Satan. And so, you'll be condemned if you're saying, Jesus Christ is not Lord. Now, it's not just saying the words, but it's believing in your heart, he says, that he rose from the dead, that he died for you. He paid the price for your sins. He did all the work. All we can do is put our faith and trust in him. So look at verse 38. This blows me away, too. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Are you kidding me? You mean casting out demons, cleansing lepers, raising people from the dead? Opening blind eyes, that's not enough? You want to see a sign? Are you guys crazy? What more could Jesus have done? Again, seeing is not always believing. It's not on the screen, but Romans ten seventeen says, So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This is where we need to be in the word. Your faith will be strong as you believe God's word. So this is what Jesus says in response to, We want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil And adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish or whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in the tomb. First of all, he lets him know that an evil and an adulterous generation seeks that word seeks means craves they crave after signs and wonders i'm sure these pharisees didn't appreciate what jesus was telling them but it's true miracles are wonderful acts of god's love and his grace but that's not what's going to save a person if that was the case i always go back to then every israelite that came out of egypt should have been saved because every day they saw miracles. Every day was a miraculous thing that God did. Even getting them out of Egypt, the ten plagues God sent. And the pharaoh, you know, magicians couldn't answer. He strikes down the, the firstborn in all of Egypt. That's when they're the tenth plague. That's finally when he lets them go. But remember what God told the Jews to do. Put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And when the deaf angel passes over... That's the first Passover. When he sees the blood of the lamb, you'll be spared. And so that's what the Jews did. And Jesus is our Passover lamb. So they leave Egypt. They get to the Red Sea. They're stuck. Oh, no, we're going to die. Look at Pharaoh's army coming after us. And God tells Moses, stretch out your hand with your staff. And he holds it out. And he parts the Red Sea. And they walk on dry land. They get on the other side. God closes it on Pharaoh's army. They all drown. I think it's so stupid when people say, oh, it was the Sea of Reeds up to the north. There's only like six or eight inches of water. Really? That's what drowned Pharaoh's army? What's a bigger miracle? Drowning in six inches of water or God parting the Red Sea and closing it in on them? I mean, it's ridiculous. So anyway, they get out there and they whine. There's no water. So he gives them water from a rock. There's no food. He gives them manna from heaven. For 40 years, their Teva sandals never wore out. God did everything for them. Every day was a miracle. The cloud, you know, the pillar of fire by night keep them warm in the desert. The cloud by day to keep them cool in the desert sun. God was with them. Miracle after miracle. Yet, after about a couple weeks getting up to the promised land, I don't know if we can go in here. God says we can go in. So Joshua, Caleb, and 10 other spies go in. They come back. Joshua and Caleb, hey, the land is ours. We can take it. God's going to give us victory. And the other 10 said, no, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're giants. We can't do it. No belief, unbelief. And so God judges them. From that point on, they would wander another forty-nine or 39-plus years in the desert till everyone 20 years and older died off. And it says, God didn't let them in because of their unbelief. Signs and wonders, don't crave after them. Let God be God. He can do what He wants, how He wants, and then rejoice in what He does. But signs and wonders don't save people. Here, Jesus, miracle after miracle after miracle, what's going to happen at the end of His ministry? Crucify Him! Crucify Him! All the crowd yells to crucify Him. Amazing to me. An adulterous, evil generation craves after these things. No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now this is significant because Jesus believed in a big fish story. Yeah. <laughs> Remember what happened with Jonah? God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, preach you know, repentance to them. And Jonah's like, no, I don't want to go. Those people are wicked. I don't want to go there. And so he gets on a ship, goes to the opposite direction, to Tarshish, in a storm, God allows a storm to happen They're, They draw straws and it ends up, Jonah, he goes, well, throw me overboard. That's the reason why the storm, God doesn't want me going there. And so he gets tossed over. It says, God prepared a whale, a great fish, swallows him up. And he's in there for three days. He repents while he's in the whale. What else are you going to do? And it's like, okay, I'm still alive. And then the whale goes to the beach, barfs him up on the beach, And then he walks all the way to Nineveh, which is way inland. And he's probably white, bleached white. and He's got seaweed wrapped around his head. People in Nineveh are like, whoa, this is weird. And all he says, because he hated the Ninevites, he still hated them. But he goes up there and he says, repent, 40 days, you're all toast. That's paraphrased version. But he says, in 40 days, God's going to judge you. And it says, every person in Nineveh, about 250,000 people repented. Amazing. And then Jonah's mad because they repented. He goes up on a hillside, and he looks over, and he's like, Ugh, mad, and God's like, what's the matter with you? I knew you were a merciful God. I knew you were going to forgive them. That's why I didn't want to come. And it's like, what a jerk. Amazing. But that was the sign, Jesus says. He was three days, three nights, and the great fish, the whale, barfed out of the beach. Jesus says, I'm going to be three days, three nights, in the belly of the earth, in the tomb, he would not be barfed up or regurgitated. He'd be resurrected. He'd come forth, and he would conquer the grave. Awesome. Anyway, the sign Jesus is talking about here is his resurrection. But guess what? That sign wasn't even good enough for these guys. Remember when Jesus rises from the dead. The guards are all freaked out because the angel shows up, and they run and say, something happened. And it's like, they paid him money. Go tell everybody The disciples came and stole his body while you guys were asleep. They didn't want to believe. So no sign needs to be given to people that don't want to believe. It comes down to put your faith and trust in Christ alone. Recognize I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Jesus loves me. He died for me. He paid the price I could never pay. So verse 41 The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And Jonah didn't even like him. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Uh, 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 Amazing. Here Jesus comes with love, with compassion and truth, healing, setting captives free, and they still would reject him. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. He's talking about the queen of Sheba. She was a Gentile. She traveled great distance to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon. And she got blessed by the Lord. But here's Jesus, who's the omniscient one, all knowing, all wisdom. He went a greater distance from heaven to earth to reveal the heart of God the Father. But again, he's rejected by these self-righteous religious people. Jesus is infinitely greater than Jonah, infinitely greater than Solomon, infinitely greater than everybody else. So he says in verse 43, we'll wrap it up here. He says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, He goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Now, there's a twofold application. Individually, demon-possessed people, a demon can leave, but if they don't refill their hearts with Jesus, if they have a demon cast up, but they don't come to Christ for salvation, they just got a clean heart for a little while. But notice what he says here. Verse 44, then he says, this demon, I will return to my house from which I came, And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. And so the second part of the application is he's talking about the nation of Israel. In many ways, their house was clean, They had been taken into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And the land sat fallow for 70 years. They come back. Why were they taken? Well, because of idolatry, wickedness, rebellion against the Lord. They come back. Everything's in order. The Pharisees, man, we're going to be very legalistic. We're going to make sure we don't do idolatry stuff. We're not going to do these wicked things anymore. And yet, they rejected Jesus. They didn't receive Him as their Lord and Savior. And so, they were going to experience even worse judgment later down the road. And he's really giving a prophecy here because by rejecting Jesus, they were opening themselves up to what would happen in 70 AD when General Titus of the Roman army would come into Jerusalem. He would destroy the temple, slaughter a million Jews in Jerusalem. He would scatter the Israelites for almost 1,900 years. May 14th, 1948, God brings them back into the land. Jesus will speak more about this later but the important thing to remember about this Jesus is saying I don't just want your heart to you know go a different direction over here repentance is not just turning away from evil repentance is turning to the Lord they were stop they stopped doing a lot of bad stuff in Israel but they weren't receiving the Lord and savior their messiah and and so he doesn't just want reformation from people there's a lot of jails that have people that are feel bad for what happened and they get out and they enter right back in and it becomes a revolving door back in and in and out and out because they're not being regenerated. That's what God wants, not just a change of your mind. He wants a change of your heart. He wants you to give your heart to the Lord. Let Him make those real lasting changes in your life. Not just saying, well, I'm sorry I did that but truly repenting and receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the demons won't come back. Then you know you're on the right side of God's judgment.